The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Choosing Wisely, Achieving Control with BTKI in CLL. Perspectives on safety-informed approaches to enhanced therapeutic efficacy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash BFU 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today for this exciting session that we're going to be talking about choosing wisely and achieving control with BTK inhibitors and CLL. I want to welcome my fellow panelists, um, Dr. Daniel Addison, a oncocardiologist from Ohio State, uh, say Matt Davids, a phenomenal physician scientist from the Dana-Farber, say Dr. Paolo Ghia, say from... Italy and Boston, correct? Say two places. Is it three now? And Dr. Jennifer Wayak from the Ohio State University. We've been blessed in, in CLL with a number of approvals and of medicines, both the covalent BTK inhibitors, the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax, and hopefully soon a non-covalent BTK inhibitor Pertubertinib or nematabrutinib or others that are following. Um, where where do these therapies follow? First, you know, first we've pretty much, except for a small category of patients, ditched um, chemoimmunotherapy, uh, and you know, say we have these big choices between um, acalabrutinib plus or minus abinutuzumab, say xanabrutinib or venetoclax plus abinutuzumab. And then pretty much reversing these uh, in, uh, you know, in second line. Um, ibrutinib is still here, and say, you know, say, but it's a first-generation molecule, and the combination, which is approved across, uh, you know, say, in Europe, but not in the U.S. of ibrutinib uh, and venetoclax. Say, we're blessed that these drugs work in high-risk patients, the 17P uh, group, with uh, pulling this from multiple studies with ibrutinib. And, you know, say these, these data from the, the Elevate Treatment Naive, it's a point to a question that we'll talk about a little bit later about the benefit of abinutuzumab in the era of kinase inhibitors and their use with BTK inhibitors. And there'll be an update about this at ASH. Similarly, we have data with the other second generation BTK inhibitor, Xanabrutinib, showing, again, that this is, this is a great drug compared to er everything else that we had before for 17P CLL. And despite this, though, say, you know, say the the use of these the use of these drugs in the real world, say, is still a moving target, and we have a lot of room as physicians to educate people. You know, in that only only a subset of patients are tested for TP53 um, in the U.S., and I I think what's tragic is patients with 17P. Uh, or p53 mutations, in some cases, are still getting chemoimmunotherapy, which we all know doesn't work. Um, we also have the we also have the challenge. You know, most of, more of these data are derived from ibrutinib, our first generation BTK inhibitor. That patients over time don't tolerate um, these medicines. Uh, you know, the, the in the real world, 42% of patients discontinuing ibrutinib. Similar finding, say, in, in the Danish experience. And while these adverse events um, it, are sh seen most frequently in the first six months, it's, it's the gift that comes with, it continues to come with time that we still see late onset of AFib, hypertension, you know, and, and I think with, with ibrutinib, as I say, if you treat somebody long enough, they will develop um, hypertension in most cases. So our goals today are to augment your knowledge on the efficacy of BTK platforms in CLL and to talk about the safety considerations. And as we plan this, we really wanted to pull somebody who's not in our field, who's an oncocardiologist, and who really thinks about this problem of hypertension, atrial fibrillation, ventricular arrhythmias in a different way than we do. And then 
is say, to talk about combinations, new combinations coming forward. So this is our team um, of, um, that we'll be presenting. We're gonna say we're gonna sort of have an engaging discussion. We're gonna have an engaging discussion um, now about a patient, uh, you know, about a patient, um, say with CLL on a BTK inhibitor. And this is Eric. He's 70 years old. He's symptomatic um, with CLL on a BTK inhibitor. He initially presented in 2019 um, and was watched. He was started on. He was started on, on you know, on on ibrutinib. Say he's he has hypertension that was maintained with an ACE inhibitor, and you know he has deletion 17P. So, and say what say say I'm I'm going to start with Doctor uh, Doctor Addison to sort of give some thoughts on this question. What additional testing might we have considered from a heart standpoint at you know at at pretreatment, and is this the type of patient that? you would typically see in your cardio-oncology clinic? That's I, I think in this setting, in terms of thinking about this patient, this patient really only has a baseline hypertension and age as far as their baseline risk. And they will initiate a brutinib, which we know is potentially pro-arrhythmogenic in, in this setting. But practically for most in the community, we would generally at least consider a baseline um, ECG and a baseline echo, really for risk stratification in this setting. Beyond that, I would not necessarily say that a lot more has to be done in the absence of baseline known arrhythmic disease or baseline heart failure. Similarly, as far as assuming engaging cardio-oncology, and really, you know, at baseline, if you have access to a cardio-oncologist, yes, many of these patients can be referred pre-treatment. I think practically in the community, there may not necessarily be enough cardio-oncologists to really see all of these patients, but at least some baseline knowledge of at least getting an ECG and an echo in a patient who's at relatively higher risk to potentially develop AF will really go a long way in the management and stratification of this patient. All right. So this, so this, this, this scenario becomes more complicated uh, because this patient is, is, uh, develops rapid atrial fib, four months requiring an ER evaluation. He's, he starts on, he starts on, uh, he's metaprolol, his ibrutinib's held. He's say, we leave out, we leave out that, that he has a rapid tumor flare that's treated with steroids. And he's resumed, uh, he, he, convert, he converts out of AFib and then is resumed at a lower dose of um, say 280 milligrams, the atrial fibrillation returns. Um, and uh, say, I'm, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop there. He gets an echo, he has normal EF. You know, say, um, Paula, how do we manage that patient? Yeah, no, I wanted, no, actually, I wanted to make a comment uh, about what Daniel said, which is absolutely correct that we have to look, uh, seek for a cardiologist if you have one. But from my point of view, I would really prompt uh, and take the start of a BTKI as the chance and the occasion to seek for a, a cardiologist in general. So you start interacting with your cardiologist, and then also the cardiologist will start piling up experience with BTKIs because nobody, uh, many probably don't have even experience with the drug. So that's what we, we saw with our colleague who was a cardiologist. Now he has been promoted to be a cardio-oncologist, uh, but because he developed an experience on using BTKIs, in particular brutin for many, many years. Which is so, so I want to, I want to get us back. That, that's a great point. So what would you do with this patient? Which is, you, you see that they resumed, but at the 280 milligram dose, when AFib recurred on ibrutinib, would you discontinue? Yeah, now, actually, that's what, uh, unfortunately, it is prescribed in the SPC, so we have to decrease the, uh, we, we could even stop uh, and discontinue um, BTKI and ibrutinib in particular if there is a high-grade high uh, atrial fibrillation. Uh, in the past, we were not discontinuing, we were not decreasing the dose. Uh, we were all happy, in particular the cardio-oncologist, to take care of the patient under full dose so that you, can, you could adjust, they could adjust 
the, um, um, uh, the anti-arrhythmic treatment, the anticoagulation, so on and so forth. So nowadays we have to follow the rules and therefore we, uh, we have indeed to, to, to go um, being symptomatic, rapid, so probably defined as a grade three. I mean, we might want to discuss having the cardiologist here what we mean with grade two and grade three in terms of atrial fibrillation, but that's another point. So this is uh, exactly what uh, we would do. So we would try to uh, um, keep the patient on the treatment because now the atrial fibrillation is there. I, so, it, 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 um, Dr. Wojak, it, it, Dr. Wojak and David, what would you, would you continue with the abridnib? with the dose reduction? So I, th I think that um, this certainly aligns with the package insert of ibrutinib. And as Paolo mentioned, you know, years ago when we had one BTK inhibitor to choose from, we absolutely would do this or continue on the full dose. Um, now we're lucky that we have two second generation BTK inhibitors. And so normally in clinical practice, if I had somebody on ibrutinib who had AFib, I generally would stop the ibrutinib and switch to a second generation BTK inhibitor. Yeah, I would have a similar approach, unless it was a patient who had been on a BTK inhibitor for a long period of time and was already in a very deep remission, and maybe you could pause therapy entirely and give them a break. But in this case, only four months, I think you'd need to switch to second-generation BTK. Maybe if I have to give a non-US perspective, in some countries, we cannot switch between BTKIs. So that's the thing I want to reassure as I learned from the cardiologist, is that the patient has atrial fibrillation, nothing else can happen, so you can keep it safely also on the, on the same drug if this is the only option you have. We're, we're, blessed, we're, we're blessed to have somebody that knows more about the heart than any of us in the room, probably. So say, you know, Dr. Addison, what would you do? What would you recommend if, if this patient were sent to you? Now, first of all, we all learn about the heart together. But uh, I think beyond that... Um, yeah, so I, I'll tackle this really in two forms. I think the current strategy in the U.S. is to potentially consider or at least open the door to the consideration of an alternative um, next-generation BTKI. And these BTKIs uh, appear to have lower AF risk. There is some question about is there some still residual proarrhythmic risk. Uh, that's not completely been well answered as of yet. But generally in that setting, that is a reasonable strategy. As far as really in any setting, particularly uh, if one were to continue ibrutinib or otherwise, generally the way that we think about AF is really about symptoms and symptom limitation. So beyond just the normal rate or rhythm control strategy, plus minus anticoagulation, really the decision about um, really any BTK therapy or any other therapy depends really on the patient's ability to continue um, despite symptoms. So if we can potentially control symptoms with something like increase in AV nodal blockers like, um, like metoprolol and others, really in many settings, this may allow the patient to continue on on their BTKI. And generally, as long as we can reduce the stroke risk and control symptoms, that is a reasonable strategy in many settings. So, so this, this particular patient, um, you know, I'm just curious, is this, would this be the appropriate person, even if you're at a small center, that you would send to a bigger place to see a cardio-oncologist? Yeah, so that's a wonderful question. I, I think in this scenario, if the patient were to continue to have, say, higher grade AF or, you know, symptomatic AF despite baseline um, AV nodal blocker initiation, this is the type of patient I would refer, or at least allow, certainly referral to a cardio-oncologist. If you have one readily available, by all means, you know, we're happy to see this patient relatively early on. But in maybe a, a more resource-limited setting as far as access to cardio-oncology, then really uh, we would start at least with these baseline approaches or strategies, and then if the patient continues to be intolerant, then refer. And say the, you know, say the you know, sort of the last question, and this is more to our CLL doctors and uh, this, this a similar patient that presents with, with watch, watch and wait, has, hyper, has hypertension. We have, you know, three covalent BTK inhibitors. Um, is there is there one would you if for just hypertension would you, would would you select a second generation medicine over a, you know a first generation medicine in this patient it's a loaded question 
Okay, sure. Um, yes, definitely I would choose a second generation BTK inhibitor in this patient. The NCCN guidelines currently recommend um, second generation BTK inhibitors as the first approach. Yeah, I agree. And particularly in a patient who already has baseline hypertension, I think that's important. I think between the two second generation BTK inhibitors, we obviously don't have head-to-head -head data. Uh, as we'll see, we have head-to-head -head data comparing each drug to ibrutinib. There's maybe a hint of, of lower hypertension with acala versus ibrutinib, whereas that was not seen in the head-to-head -head study of xanabrutinib with ibrutinib. So I may lean toward acalabrutinib for this particular patient. Yeah, so not much difference here. Um, definitely in 2023, we, this is a typical patient who may develop uh, atrial fibrillation. Is a male, is elderly, um, um, hypertension. So uh, second generation BTKI are the choice. I might say that indeed in a couple of studies, ACALA shows to, uh, to, be, to have less hypertension, probably very um, close to base to background level, let's say, and so that probably could be a choice here. It's it's great that we have several drugs that we can tailor to our patients. All right, so I'm going to talk very briefly about um, some of the evidence for safety informed treatment with BTK inhibitors. Um, so th these kinase profiles are probably familiar to most in the audience. Um, for those of you not as familiar with them, so each of um, this is looking at all three of our covalent BTK inhibitors that are currently FDA approved. Um, these maps, the pie-shaped slices are kinase families. Green dots represent individual kinases. Red dots show the kinases that are inhibited by each drug. And the larger the circle, the more potent the inhibition is there. The hypothesis when originally designing the second generation BTK inhibitors that you can visually see are more selective for BTK than ibrutinib is, is that um, having more selective inhibition of BTK and less alternative targets may be beneficial for safety. And the reason for that is that we think that many of the side effects that we associate with the BTK inhibitors um, may not actually be due to the inhibition of BTK itself, but due to some of these structurally similar proteins. And these include things like TEC, which might be associated with some of the bleeding and cardiac toxicity, as well as the kinase uh, CSK with um, some of the arrhythmias, as well EGFR is inhibited by ibrutinib specifically, and um, obviously that's associated with rash, diarrhea, and arthralgias and other tumors. So to kind of summarize many, many papers looking at safety with BTK inhibitors, um, a few things have come up. Um, you know, on the left here, you can see in that figure a number of the side effects that we associate with this class of drugs, things like cardiac toxicity, as has been mentioned, arthralgias, infections, bleeding, hypertension, diarrhea. Um, in general, the studies that have led to the approval of these agents have excluded patients on warfarin, um, and there was a safety signal with warfarin when given um, with ibrutinib initially. Um, so it's not recommended to continue warfarin in patients who are getting a BTK inhibitor. For patients who do develop atrial fibrillation who need to be anticoagulated, the recommendation would be to use a non-warfarin anticoagulant. Um, those appear to be much safer when combined with BTK inhibitors, but still still do have a little bit higher risk for bleeding than if patients weren't on a blood thinner. Um, so of course, close monitoring is indicated. Hypertension obviously comes up very commonly and should be managed with antihypertensives, um, potentially in combination with um, your cardio-oncology colleagues or nephrology colleagues. And then monitoring for specific symptoms associated with BTK inhibitors over time is really important. So, you know, asking patients about uh, questions related to arrhythmias, um, asking about bleeding and bruising with this class of medication, and then, of course, infections um, and secondary cancers, making sure patients are up to date with vaccines and with cancer screening. Um, in the setting of ibrutinib intolerance, sequencing to a second-generation BTK inhibitor has been shown to uh, be effective, and in many cases, side effects that cause discontinuation on ibrutinib um, or even on acalabrutinib do not recur when switching to an alternative second-generation BTK inhibitor. And as well, um, limited data exists thus far, um, but there, it does look like sequencing to specifically pyrtobrutinib as a non-covalent BTK inhibitor um, in the setting of intolerance uh, would also be uh, useful. 
So going to our head-to-head studies of the second-generation BTK inhibitors compared with ibrutinib, I think everybody is familiar with these data as well. Um, This is uh, the progression-free survival curve from the Elevate RR study. So this was a study of ibrutinib versus acalabrutinib in relapsed refractory CLL patients who had high-risk features. Um, This was designed as a non-inferiority study, and you can see um, visually that acalabrutinib is indeed non-inferior to ibrutinib in terms of progression-free survival. Um, Importantly, this study did demonstrate what was the hypothesis, which is that many of these side effects that are seen with ibrutinib do show up at lower rates with the treatment with acalabrutinib. Um, So you can see the key secondary endpoint here was atrial fibrillation or flutter, which was significantly lower in patients on acalabrutinib compared with ibrutinib as well incidence of hypertension significantly lower with acalabrutinib. Incidence of bleeding was also significantly lower, and I think it's important to mention here that this is primarily driven by low-grade bleeding and bruising, which is much lower with acalabrutinib compared to ibrutinib. All of the BTK inhibitor, all of the covalent BTK inhibitors at least, have fairly similar rates of higher-grade bleeding. As well, you know, some of those toxicities that tend to be really bothersome for patients over time, like diarrhea and arthralgia, is also significantly lower for acalabrutinib compared with ibrutinib. And because of these, the treatment discontinuations with acalabrutinib were also significantly lower than ibrutinib. This is a post-hoc analysis of Elevate RR that was um, designed to try to explain some of the lower-grade, very frequent toxicities um, that are really hard to capture in a clinical trial where patients are on drug for many, many years. Um, And of course, most patients age 75 over the course of five years are going to have some um, episode of arthralgia or some episode of diarrhea. Um, So this study was done using an adverse event burden score, which takes into account both grade of toxicity toxicity and the amount of time a patient experiences the toxicity. And so again, looking at the Elevate RR study, we see that um, as expected, some of these cardiac toxicities, atrial fibrillation and hypertension are more common or more burdensome in patients treated with ibrutinib compared to acalabrutinib, as is bleeding. Um, In contrast, headache and cough um, had a higher AE burden with acalabrutinib as compared to ibrutinib. Uh, moving over to the Alpine study, this is the head-to-head trial of xanabrutinib compared to ibrutinib. This, again, was performed in relapsed refractory CLL patients, but um, this was all commerce and not high risk. And this study was designed to look um, first at overall response rate and then progression-free survival, first um, looking at non-inferiority and then superiority. Um, here we see that with a follow-up of almost 30 months, progression-free survival um, was significantly higher with xanabrutinib compared with ibrutinib, um, and as well response rate as well was higher with xanabrutinib. The safety analysis here again significantly shows that atrial fibrillation or flutter was much lower with, with xanabrutinib as compared with ibrutinib. Hypertension was fairly similar with the two agents, and hemorrhage as well fairly similar between the two agents. Treatment discontinuations though significantly lower with xanabrutinib compared with ibrutinib. So I wanted to end with talking about some of the principles for management of atrial fibrillation. So in patients who do have new onset or worsened atrial fibrillation on a BTK inhibitor, um, first thing is um, getting an EKG and uh, obviously to confirm the rhythm and an echo for prognostic uh, management. And then, of course, if you haven't already, consulting your cardio-oncologist or a cardiologist in this setting. Um, For patients who have limited cardiovascular symptoms, you can consider continuing the BTK inhibitor. You know, in somebody who has symptoms, uh, discontinuation, at least for a period of time, is warranted as well. You know, many patients who have been on the drug for for years and have a very deep remission, you can certainly hold the drug for a little while while you're trying to decide um, whether to continue or discontinue in the future. Um, I think that's especially helpful if you're going to initiate anticoagulation just to be sure that you can start the anticoagulation safely and then fold back in your BTK inhibitor. Um, In patients who are on a first-generation BTK inhibitor, again, um, consider changing to a second-generation inhibitor. So thinking about treatment selection in those patients who have no cardiovascular risk factors, really any approved BTK inhibitor is fine. Um, Again, NCCN guidelines would suggest a second-generation BTK inhibitor could be considered even in patients with no risk factors. Those with cardiovascular risk factors certainly should be preferenced towards um, acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib.
So some of the take-homes with safety, BTK inhibitors are associated with a spectrum of very typical adverse events, and the more selective inhibitors have less incidence of many of these um, events. Head-to-head studies show improved tolerability with either acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib compared with ibrutinib. Very difficult to compare the two second-generation inhibitors, though. And cardiac um, AEs, including arrhythmias and hypertension, are best managed in collaboration with our cardio-oncology colleagues. David's is going to come up and talk to us about combinations. We're going to start with a clinical case again. Um, This is Margaret. She's a 71-year-old woman with treatment-naive CLL. She has B symptoms, splenomegaly, bulky and expanding lymphadenopathy ductia. Uh, Say, and creatine clearance of 53, formicetis of 1, and unmutated IGBH and complex karyotype. And we didn't have a TP53. So um, this is, this is we're, gonna, we're, going to, we're gonna ask an ethnocentric question here. So we're gonna, we're gonna start with our, we're gonna start with our US physicians, with Dr. Wojak and David's, and ask, is, is this something, would you consider a combination outside of a clinical trial? You know, I think right now with the data that we have and the lack of approval of a BTK inhibitor venetoclax combo in the U.S., I would probably not choose a BTK inhibitor plus venetoclax, although I think this is absolutely an excellent patient to treat with this combo on a clinical trial. Yep, totally agree. Nothing to add there. Yep, so ditto. Um, so now, now we're say we're, we're putting you, we, 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 invited you, we invited you to the podium for a reason. So we're, we're curious... If, we're curious. We're, what would, what would, what would, what would the European perspective be with this, where it's approved? Actually, just as a disclosure, is not only the European perspective because uh, um, I plus V, for example, Ibrutin plus Vendetta is approved and accessible in many other countries in Latin America and Middle East, Asia, and so on and so forth. So, I think uh, the vast majority of the countries actually have access. Um, is a great. It's a gray zone, this patient, 71, probably would not be my uh, first uh, indication, um, a combination of BTKI plus venetoclax, uh, as in the GLOW study, so with elderly patient treated with a combination versus tolerambulacy plus obinotutinib, they showed indeed a, a little bit more toxicity, compared instead to the CAPTV study where we treated the young patients, uh, that would be my first choice. So same patient, 61, with unmutated immunoglobulin genes, complex karyotype, I think it's a very good option in terms of uh, fixed duration treatment uh, rather than keeping the patient forever, particularly if young. Uh, this patient, I have to say, one of the first patients I treated in, within the CLL17 study, where also I plus V is one of the three options, the German CLL study group, was actually a lady, 72 years old, unmutated. So at the end, and she ended up, though the study is a um, three-arm study with uh, ebrutinib versus venetoclast plus obrinotuzumab and uh, uh, venetoclast plus ebrutinib, she ended up being randomized to uh, venetoclast plus ibrutinib. She's now undetectable MRD. Uh, she completed uh, 15 cycles. So at the end, no major issues. Lots of studies addressing this question, and it's just interesting, that the different perspective. So let's get to something even more controversial, maybe. Uh, what about a combination of, uh, say, a BTK inhibitor and a CD20 antibody here? Oh. So, Matt? Yeah, so we'll, we'll see some data on this in a moment. I think it matters which BTK inhibitor and which CD20 antibody you're talking about. So I would consider acalabrutinib with obinutuzumab combination uh, for this patient. As we'll see, there's a PFS advantage over acalabrutinib monotherapy, although no overall survival advantage at this point. And fog. So again, not in every country there is access to the combination. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, access to the combination. Uh, Again, is a gray, gray patient, <laughs> a gray zone, uh, meaning that uh, there is indeed an advantage in terms of PFS, which is now quite solid and increasing. Um, the patient is 71, so she could benefit of that advantage because that becomes evident after five, six years of treatment. She's elderly, 
maybe she doesn't want to come to the hospital to get the infusion. So I think it would be more a, a logistical uh, uh, motivation rather than scientific, where indeed um, uh, it is, there is an advantage, which is good, but not exceptional. So it's really you can discuss with the patient. Dr. Wayak, your thoughts? Yeah, definitely agree with the other two. Um, it's a great therapy. She would likely benefit from the combination, um, but sometimes logistics would dictate that this is not the most attractive regimen for patients. Yeah, I, 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 the provocative data from your initial 20 patient series and uh, you know the elevate treatment naive where you have this nice progression free and overall survival and now now wait, there's a, a md anderson had a discontinuation study at ash last year and memorial has a memorial sun kettering has a study cooking you know i think th th the an interesting point to me is 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 this an alternative for time limited time limited therapy and you know that's something in my practice, I sometimes I sometimes do if somebody's MRD negative after this, and so I, I'm going to throw the question to our cardio oncologist and ask: as you look at these two, as you look at these two combi combinations, a venetoclax BTK inhibitor versus a CD20 antibody BTK inhibitor, you know, are there patients from a cardiovascular, from a, a cardio oncology direction that you would point toward one or the other direction? No, that's a great question. There are really no established data at this point to indicate that any additive agent targeted this case, either such as venetoclax or even a CD20, necessarily um, supplements or enhances the cardiovascular risk of a BTKI, at least from the available data that we have that's a little bit more um, robust at this time. All right, so we're, we're fortunate that we have very effective continuous BTK inhibitors, but they do require very long-term therapy to achieve these benefits. And so there have been a lot of data developing in the last few years for the combination approaches that we'll review briefly here. So the first, just to show you some of the data around this question of whether adding a CD20 antibody makes a difference when we have continuous BTK inhibitor-based therapy. So we'd seen data from the U.S. Alliance study that Jen Wojak published showing no benefit with the addition of rituximab to ibrutinib. And we have data from the Illuminate study that looked at abrutinib obinutuzumab compared to obinutuzumab chlorambucil, but unfortunately that study did not have an abrutinib-only arm, so we can't understand whether there's a benefit of adding obinutuzumab to abrutinib from that study. So really the best data that we have come from the Elevate-TN study that we were just alluding to previously. Remember, this is a three-arm study where two of the arms included a calabrutinib given continuously, but one of those arms also did an initial six-month combination with obinutuzumab. So that's the top curve here, 84% progression-free survival at five years compared to 72% with acalabrutinib alone. So these curves are clearly separate. This is statistically significant. Uh, there's no difference in overall survival at this point, but if you're counseling a patient about what's likely to achieve the longest PFS uh, with acalabrutinib-based therapy, it would be the combination. But of course, there is the trade-off with the inconvenience of the infusions and the potential for added toxicities. Now, if you are going to consider acalabrutinib with obinutuzumab, I think it's important to think about which particular patients based on their genetic background are most likely to benefit. So we did an analysis of this study looking at unmutated IGHV patients. That's the top curves there. There you can see a pretty significant difference with a longer PFS with acalaobin. But at the bottom, you can see when looking specifically at patients with TP53 aberrant CLL, either deletion 17P or TP53 mutation, there's no statistically significant difference in PFS. And this is actually a common referral that I've seen where patients are referred in for consideration of the combination therapy and they have high-risk genetics. And I typically advise against the combination because there you're getting added toxicity and inconvenience without the likelihood of an increased PFS. So what about the rationale for combining BTK inhibitors with the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax? Several studies demonstrated preclinical synergies. There was a lot of excitement about this, even just from a purely mechanistic standpoint. We know that venetoclax is particularly effective at clearing bone marrow disease of CLL. We know that BTK inhibitors can very effectively clear lymph nodes through lymphocyte redistribution and other mechanisms. Moreover, these two oral therapies have non-overlapping toxicity profiles. And in general, I think as a principle, when we use these combination approaches, we're less likely to generate resistance. So we have potential here for very highly effective time-limited therapy, potentially even all oral therapy. And now we have quite a few data sets to help inform this. So one of the first studies here was from the MD Anderson, the single center study of abrutinib plus venetoclax. These patients had variable lengths of, of therapy, uh, but most patients had 24 cycles of abrutinib and venetoclax. 
can see really outstanding four-year PFS here, close to 95% in this frontline population. And interestingly, no difference in the patients with TP53 aberrant CLL. As Paulo alluded to, the CAPTIVATE study is a much larger multicenter experience. This is a phase two study, complex study that has two major cohorts, an MRD-guided strategy and then a fixed duration strategy. For the interest of time, just showing you some of the data from the fixed duration cohort here. So you can see that the rates of CR are quite high. So on the graph on the left, what you're looking at is CR rates 12 months, 24 months, and 36 months after this 15-cycle treatment. And you can see even a year after finishing therapy, about half of the patients or more are still in a complete remission, although this does go down a bit over time as patients begin to show some signs of progression. Nonetheless, on the right, you see the PFS looks quite promising. Uh, for all patients in particular, 79% at four years. There is a hint that the patients with TP53 aberrancy might be a bit lower at 63% at four years. And then Paulo also mentioned the GLOW study. This is the phase three registrational trial of abrutinib plus venetoclax compared to obinutuzumab chlorambucil. This was again a 15 cycle therapy of abrutinib venetoclax compared to the typical six months of obinutuzumab chlorambucil. And as we know, the I plus V regimen was superior in terms of efficacy. Uh, but one of the things that I think is very informative about the GLOW study is the safety profile of I plus V. Remember the GLOW study was an older patient population, and unfortunately there were four on-treatment fatal cardiac-related adverse events in the abrutinib plus venetoclax arm. Nonetheless, this did lead to registration in the EMA and other countries, as you heard, but just kind of focusing a little bit more on the toxicity profile. So our patient was 71, so that's exactly the median age on GLOW. And you can see in addition to uh, the cardiovascular issues, there was a fairly high rate of grade three or higher infections at 12%. It's actually higher than the obinicizumab chlorambucil arm. Of course, this is not unique to this study or this regimen. This is unfortunately a problem for, for most of our CLL patients on any regimen. But I think what was also striking was the high rate of atrial fib and flutter, 14% all grade. Uh, and this did lead to discontinuation uh, of abrutinib because of AFib in a couple of patients. Now, Captivate has a much younger median age. In this cohort, it's a median age of around 60 years. You see some cytopenias like neutropenia um, and some hypertension at 6% grade three or higher. And of course, infection comes up. But reassuringly, in this younger population, the rate of any grade AFib is a lot lower at 4%. There was one sudden cardiac death in this study, but that was out of 159 total patients treated. So the rate does seem to be much lower than what was seen in GLOW. So these combinations are certainly highly effective of abrutinib with venetoclax, but I think we need to think about which patient population we're selecting, and we need to take some care in older patients, I think particularly those with cardiovascular comorbidities. So Jen shared some pearls around the management tips with BTK inhibitors. Uh, since we're talking about venetoclax combinations, I thought I'd throw up a few for venetoclax specifically. We think about TLS with venetoclax, but actually that's exceedingly rare. What we see much more commonly is myelosuppression, uh, particularly grade three or higher neutropenia, which is relatively common, especially when we're using this in, in combination approaches. Uh, but we can use growth factor support with GCSF. We may need to use antibiotics if patients are having febrile neutropenia, but that's quite unusual. It's usually quite manageable with uh, dose reduction, dose interruption, and GCSF support. Uh, of course, we monitor closely for infections. That remains a problem with all of our regimens. We have some GI side effects that we sometimes have to deal with with venetoclax, but usually quite manageable. Uh, I mentioned the TLS criteria on the right. We won't go into detail there, but of course, we do need to be mindful of following the dose ramp up with venetoclax and, and monitoring closely. All right, so as we kind of expand now, we have triplet data. So abrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab. Uh, some of the original work was done at The Ohio State with, with Jen Wyack and Kerry Rogers and the group there. Uh, we just saw an important publication from Stefan Silgrenbauer's group and the German CLL study group, the CLL2GIVE study, which focused on high-risk patients with TP53 aberrant CLL, 41 patients. And in the final analysis at 36 months, the progression-free survival is about 80% in this high-risk group. Excellent overall survival. You do see some of the typical abrutinib-related adverse events, as you see in the graph there. They typically do decrease over time as patients stay on therapy, although, again, hypertension and atrial fibrillation can arise later in the course. We also saw data from Jen at the ASCO meeting this past year, uh, some of the first randomized data we've had of triplet versus doublet therapy in CLL. This is from the newer Alliance study of abrutinib van Oben versus abrutinib and Oben. And you can see here there was no difference in terms of progression-free survival between these two arms. And when we do add um, the venetoclax, there was some increase in toxicity, particularly in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic and, and infections. Uh, so we're looking forward to more mature data from this study coming along. And then we also have randomized data of triplet versus doublet from the CLL13 Gaia study, which was published earlier this year. Remember, this is the forearm study comparing chemoimmunotherapy to one of three different venetoclax-based combinations, then with rituximab, 
then with obinutuzumab, and then the triplet of IVO. And really the takeaway for me from this is that at least so far, based on MRD, which you can see on the left in the blood and the marrow, uh, as well as PFS, as you see on the right, there's no major difference or advantage at this time point from the triplet therapy over any of the doublets. You do see slightly higher numerically rates of, of MRD and, and the PFS is, is certainly favorable with the triplet. But I think if we're gonna be utilizing triplet-based therapy, we would wanna see a, a clear benefit over doublet given the increased costs and, and infection risk and, and other complications. So no clear benefit in my mind at this point. We will have important data eventually emerging from the CLL-17 study going on in, in Germany and, and elsewhere. Uh, this study is fully accrued now and is, is very important because it's helping us to understand the question of continuous BTK inhibitor therapy, in this case with ibrutinib, versus one of two different time-limited venetoclax combinations, the standard venetoclax obinutuzumab, and now a new standard venetoclax plus ibrutinib. And the primary endpoint of this study is progression-free survival. As we move further into the future, Second-generation BTK inhibitors are now also included in triplet regimens that are being studied. Just showing you one slide here from the Bovin study, which is Xanabrutinib with venetoclax and obinutuzumab. This is a study led by Jake Sumerai at Mass General here in Boston. 39 patients with a triplet therapy, and 89% of the patients achieved undetectable MRD with excellent tolerability. So this looks very favorable. You can see in the swimmer plot there, most of these patients are now out to two years and beyond and off drug and, and in remission. And at Dana-Farber, we've been leading a study of time-limited acalabrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab, or AVO. This was updated at the ASH meeting this past year by Christine Ryan. This was a study where we enhanced the population for high-risk disease. So 60% of the patients on the study have TP53 aberrant CLL. You can see on the right that at the cycle 16 response that about half of patients were in complete remission by IWCLL criteria. And we saw very high rates of undetectable MRD in the blood and the marrow at around 86%. And importantly, these rates were equivalent in patients with TP53 aberrant disease versus all comers. Also important in this study is that the tolerability of the regimen was quite favorable. We did see cytopenias, as we commonly see, but grade 3, 4 neutropenia was around 37%, so not much higher than we would expect from Venobin alone. We saw some infections, including uh, one fatal COVID infection, uh, but very low rates of AFib, just one uh, patient with grade 2 and one patient with grade 3 no ventricular arrhythmias, no febrile neutropenia or opportunistic infections, and no major bleeding events. So patients were able to tolerate this triplet well. Very few patients had to have dose reduction or dose holds. So now there's phase three data sets with this AVO triplet that are evolving. The CLL-16 trial by the German CLL study group is ongoing. This is comparing the AVO triplet to the Venobin uh, doublet in a two-to-one randomization. And this is a study that focuses on high-risk CLL patients. This will be a very important data set eventually. And then the registrational trial for AVO versus AV versus chemoimmunotherapy Amplify uh, continues to, to simmer and mature. Uh, we haven't seen data yet, but we're looking forward to, to seeing data from this study, which likely will lead to a label for acalaven, uh, possibly with obinutuzumab as well. And then I'll just plug quickly the MAGIC study, which is also ongoing. This is looking at the AV doublet versus Venobin. One of the unique aspects of MAGIC is that it's got an MRD-guided therapy of either one or two years of venetoclax combination, and the MRD assessment is based on the adaptive clonaseq assay at a level of 10 to the minus fifth. So that will be done after one year of venetoclax-based therapy. If patients still have detectable MRD, they'll go on to get a second year, and then all patients will stop at the end of the second year of therapy with a primary endpoint of progression-free survival. So a lot of data, we went through it quickly, but just some of the take-homes that I'd like to emphasize for BTK inhibitor combinations. First, adding a CD20 to a BTK inhibitor does not lead to improved overall survival, at least with the data that we have so far. Although notably, as we saw, the addition of obinutuzumab to acalabrutinib does improve PFS in the non-high-risk patients. Uh, we've seen certainly a strong preclinical and now clinical rationale for combining BTK and BCL2 inhibitors, and we've seen quite a bit of data now on abrutinib plus venetoclax, clearly a very active regimen in the frontline setting but also some toxicity concerns, particularly in older patients and those with cardiac comorbidities. Triplet-based therapy is also highly active and well-tolerated. I say particularly with the second-generation BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, but right now we don't have any clear evidence of superiority over doublet-based regimens, so it's not something I'd be re recommending routinely in clinical practice. But fortunately, we have several ongoing phase three studies now that will eventually help us to understand the comparative efficacy of these combinations versus our current standards of care. Thank you. Let's walk up and ask questions for the last uh, couple of minutes. Um, I'll say I'll start. You know, say I'll start with um, with one that's you know that's come up. Is there any future for chemoimmunotherapy 
in any patient at this time. So I have to say that it's few years that we don't use in our practice anymore immuno, immunochemotherapy. Again, uh, the, the word is big and uh, in, in many countries, uh, still also in Europe, in some countries, uh, there is no access to um, uh, only to novel therapies and therefore immunochemotherapy remains an option. I think that uh, one has to be very clear that patients with P53 aberration should never be exposed. Don't think about treating a patient, uh, even in third line, fourth line, when you are desperate, they are not responding. Um, patient with mutated immunoglobulin genes, uh, Bill and the rest of the crowd that the Anderson uh, showed, uh, Phil Thompson, uh, showed that uh, uh, 15 years, patients with mutated immunoglobulin genes can be almost cured for 15 years if treated with FCR. Let's remember that that happens in 50% of the patients. The others are progressive. Um, unmutated patient is a difficult decision. If you have nothing else, of course, you can use it. But in general, I think the trend is really towards uh, uh, the disappearance of immunochemotherapy, I think. Um, I definitely agree. In an ideal situation where all the novel agents were available, I don't believe that there's a role for chemoimmunotherapy in CLL. I think the same patients who we talk about as having the benefit from chemoimmunotherapy also get great benefit from venetoclaxobenetuzumab or BTK inhibitor, and those would be preferred. I agree. I mean, it's harder and harder to make an argument for chemoimmunotherapy. I do still think about for our very young patients, whether we could study ways to shorten the course of chemoimmunotherapy to add novel agents to it, uh, I think is worth exploring in the clinical trial setting. It's not something I would do outside of a trial. Um, and, you know, I would say also, we don't know how effective chemoimmunotherapy would be after the targeted agents in double or triple refractory patients. We have some retrospective data suggesting probably not very effective, but um, that would be interesting to generate data there. This is, for me, for me, this is the single hardest discussion for a consult a young person because we wouldn't do something new for a DLBCL patient you know, to get away from CHOP, rituximab, you know, and, and, you know, and the last person I, the last person that I presented this to was about five years ago and, or six years ago. And about a year ago, I, a year ago after moving from Columbus to Cincinnati, she moved to Cincinnati and quickly developed treatment related myeloid neoplasia. And, you know, and I think so these long-term complica long complications that follow these patients, even if you cure them from FCR, is, is a real thing. So we have, we have a question about how these doublets, is, you know, that, that you were talking about, Dr. Davids, influence COVID and you're thinking of COVID. COVID? COVID and managing patients with CLO and COVID and their outcomes. Um, I, I think that um, one of the advantages of these combinations is that they are time limited. So, you know, most cases after 15 cycles, you can stop. And so presumably then response to vaccination and, and risk of complications from COVID would, would be better uh, at that point. I think one of the challenges with continuous BTK inhibitor therapy is that there is some compromise of the immune system even from that and vaccine response, and that's a continuous therapy. So I, I do like the idea of the combinations specifically with, with the COVID situation. Um, maybe, uh, if I can say something, maybe they were referring to a combination with anti-C20 antibody. I fully agree with you with, 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 with the BTKI plus venetoclax. Actually, the patient I mentioned earlier, enrolled in CLL-17, she had two infections with COVID during the 15 months. And, uh, but uh, she, they, they were passed, uh, they were reco she recovered uh, without any issue because again, the, the, um, with BTKI and venetoclax, you stop the therapy and after 72 hours, you are free of drugs. The issue with anti-C20 antibodies uh, that they are persisting much longer. So that's the differences that we can see. Dr. Warek, your thoughts, since you, you, had, you had a casualty, your, your, the study in the Alliance was a casualty of COVID. Yeah, um, you know, as Matt um, showed in the Alliance study of ivrutinib Oben versus ivrutinib venetoclax, so benetuzumab, there was a higher rate of death from COVID on the triplet arm compared to the doublet arm. Um, so I, I think it's a, a hard question because obviously the time limited nature is really appealing and getting patients off therapy. Um, at the same time, I think that those data do suggest that there might be an additional um, risk when adding venetoclax at least to the doublet. Um, of course, keeping in mind that all those patients also had a CD20 antibody. I'm going to make a big plug 
for the uh, the APPs and the nurses that support, I think, probably all of us. And we we went, as I say, the last year and a half in our practice with people getting combos and everything, we've not lost a single patient to COVID or had a patient have to even be admitted for COVID in great part because of education of the patients to call right away and uh, the different interventions that we have, particularly Paxlovid and other and other things. And so um, I think, to say, early, getting on top of COVID early in CLL is really, really important. It is important. Um, it's, say, we're going to, we, we have two minutes left and we're going to finish, we're going to finish with last takeaway thoughts and uh, from this from this discussion, thirty seconds for everybody. Uh, doc, uh, Dr. Addison, do you want to start? Um, I, I think that when we think about cardiotoxicity, particularly with BTKIs or any other therapy, that should not necessarily mitigate or reduce the likelihood of a patient receiving potentially life-saving therapy. I do think in many cases we can potentially work around. There are scenarios in which generally, yes, there is higher risk. Those who have prolonged ventricular arrhythmias, those who've had a history of sudden death or manifest sudden death, and those who have heart failure with reduced DF. Beyond this, in most scenarios we can manage. These events do matter in the long run. We do have data in the long run. The patients may not survive as well if, they're, if it's unaddressed, but again, Generally, this should not stop you from initiating a brutinib or any other next-generation BTKI in a patient who is in need. Yes, indeed, I, my message very similar, meaning that as a hematologist, I think that we need to do a workup, a thorough cardiological workup in all our patients, including those who are going to get venetoclax, because also one of the TLS consequences is, can be arrhythmia. So you want to know very well the cardiac situation of your patient, not in order to exclude anyone. That's a very good point. So this is not to uh, define who is good or who is bad, but really to know about the situation so that you can late, uh, later uh, face it much more rapidly and prone. Dr. Davids? I would just add that I think that there will continue to be a role for continuous BTK inhibitor therapy for some patients. It's, it's a very convenient option. Uh, but that being said, I, I hope that for most patients, we're moving more toward these time-limited venetoclax-based combinations. And we have a lot to learn in terms of doublet versus triplet, MRD-guided therapy, whether that matters or not. So looking forward to further discussions at this meeting about that. Dr. Wick? I'll go back to um, something that you mentioned very early on, which is that we're really lucky in CLL right now to have so many great options um, for the treatment of our patients. And we spend a lot of time dissecting, you know, th this treatment versus that treatment. But in reality, these are all great options for our patients that are generally very safe and very, very effective. And so I, I just think it's really exciting to continue to do this work in this area and um, look at these combinations and other new agents that might even make our treatments better. And I'll just say, I'll just add to that and say, it's really everybody, everybody in this room that's contributing, you know, and that are waiting for the next session that have contributed to this great place where for most of our CLO patients, we can put them at ease and say that they're probably going to live as long as they would without their disease because of the new medicines that we have. So we want to thank you for participating in this. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BFU 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.